one thing is still the same. You have to build a good product and you have to find the customer that buys it. Hi all, and welcome to It's Complicated, a cultural history of complications. I'm Roshanda Tramble. During the quartz crisis of the 1970s and 1980s, with little more than a suitcase full of mechanical watches and a lot of personality, Hannes Pontley used his gift of geopolitical gab to travel the world selling IWC's mechanical watches to excited enthusiasts. The funds he brought back saved the company from bankruptcy and in turn saved hundreds of jobs at the manufacturer in Schaffhausen. Mr. Pontley, who has served as Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of IWC and is a member of the Board of Directors, is with us today to talk about his time at the company. He'll also discuss two of the most complicated watches IWC has made and what the company wanted to achieve by making them, and a lot more. Enjoy. In most of the people who know you and your connection to IWC. You have a long history with IWC. You were known as the man who saved IWC, but you existed before then. You had a career before then. So tell us about that. Well, I could tell you. In Switzerland, it's customary that on confirmation from your godfather or godmother, you get the first real watch. And I was in boarding school. Everybody got his watch and one of my friends got an IWC Schaffhausen. Nobody knew what that was. And he said, what the heck did you get? And he said, boys, if you don't know what this is, this is your problem. And after I finished my studies, I worked as all the good Swiss in the bank. Mm -hmm. And then I worked as a commodity broker in Geneva for, well, several years. And then I worked for an international tour operator, guiding tours through Europe, but also selling tours in the United States. But then I decided to settle down, come back to the German-speaking part of Switzerland, and a headhunter contacted me, and he said, IWC Schaffhausen. So you were actually headhunted? Yeah. Wow, okay. And the interesting thing was, I remembered right away my friend who said, if you don't know what that is, that's your problem. So I said, IWC, I really have to go and see it. So that's how it started. And what was your impression in the beginning? Well, you know, uh, I said, in such a little place, like a thousand, maximum a year or two, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was mostly traveling in those uh, days. So I said, well, one or two years and uh, that will be. Uh, It was quite interesting because luxury goods are anyhow something really interesting. Mm -hmm. And... You said you had your impression of, of Schaffhausen as being small. Where You're originally from? I'm from Dubendorf, which, which is, is outside the of most Zurich, yeah. beautiful city of Switzerland. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's just I was, born, uh, I was born in Dubendorf, and I went partly to school there. And uh, so it, I thought I was more geared for Zurich than uh, for any other place in Switzerland. Now, one thing that a lot of people have said, and I even feel this as I'm sitting here and talking to you, you you know how to make connections. You know how to build relationships. You could like write a book on how to build relationships with people. And has there been a difference in how you have built relationships like back in the 70s, 
We're talking about the 80s, 90s. Has that changed any, or what's the art of it? I don't think that it has changed a lot. I think you have to be honest all the time when you're trying to sell something, or then you have to try to talk to your future or prospective buyer on the same level. Don't be afraid, even if you go to see some of the presidents of a state or whatever, you should always try to discuss more or less on the same level. And this has not changed very much. I mean, when you come to collecting, that has changed. It's not how to approach people, but uh, the collectors have changed. There is, uh, I say in the old days now, people were buying things because they loved it and they were collecting. Now, it's more and more speculating than collecting. And there's a big difference. I always say, you know, if you know a young painter uh, and you see a picture you like, you buy it, you like it. Perhaps you're lucky or that he becomes famous and prices go up, etc. But you should buy it because you like it. If you want to speculate, you better go to the bank, even so the banks is not so safe anymore. And no. yeah, so, but still, there's a big difference. But I mean, uh, Talk to people, discuss with people. It doesn't have changed much. But would you talk to or build a relationship differently with like a 35-year-old collector as opposed to like a 65-year-old collector? I still think it's not much of a difference. What the difference is that people know much more about watches and about our brand, about IWC Schaffhausen. They more knowledgeable and this of course is to all the new possibilities of communicating and worldwide people know a lot about our watches now right because on um, on social media and Instagram you see young folks exactly yeah, with these exactly. watches with with IWC watches yeah sure I mean it has become um, well you couldn't say uh, fashion but it, it's a trend a lot of people with all the uh, electronic watches still like to have something real we say something that lives or has a movement inside and it's not just electronics because electronics you have enough around you all day long so let's uh, take a couple of steps back and talk again about your career at IWC and you being known as the man who saved IWC. What was the time like about during the court's crisis? And for those who, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with the court, court's crisis. Could you explain that and tell us what it was like during that yeah, time? Yeah, well, it's called the court's crisis, but uh, it was, of course, not only courts. There were three factors. First of all, there was something that was called the Treaty of Bretton Woods. Mm -hmm. Dates from 1944, where the U.S. signed contract with 44 of the allied uh, countries. And the exchange rates between those currencies and the dollar was fixed. It was 4 francs 30 per dollar. And also, what was even more important, the U.S. has guaranteed then that one dollar is equivalent to 30 grams of gold. And uh, then uh, it became impossible to keep these guarantees. And so in 73, uh, they canceled 
the contract of uh, Bretton Woods and the franc went almost down to a dollar, to one franc uh, sorry the dollar went almost back to one franc and on the other hand the gold which was had a fixed price for almost 30 years went from 400 4,800 francs per kilo to 42,000 uh, francs per kilo. Uh, and then on top of that was the technological uh, change, the quartz, as you said. Mm. And um, the quartz, actually, we had the first IWC launched the first quartz watch in 1968. I was just about to yeah. ask that. Tell us about that. That was mm -hmm. 1968. Mm -hmm. We launched a watch that was called Da Vinci. This was the first quartz watch that we launched with a famous movement called Beta 21. This was the first really uh, well-known Swiss quartz movement. And it, the development of this movement were financed by us and some of other famous uh, watch companies in Switzerland. The problem was the movement was too bulky and too fragile and too expensive. And on top of that, I would say, I don't know, I cannot prove it, but I think psychologically, Swiss people were afraid of the quartz because they thought eventually that could be the end of the mechanical watches. But was it really that simple? Uh... What do you mean well, by that simple? I, I get, because you were saying Swiss people thought maybe psychologically it yeah. was the end of the mechanical yeah. watch, but there were more factors, weren't there? Well, factors, uh, actually the quartz watches and the ones that came from Japan were much cheaper. Yeah. And they were reliable. Yeah. And uh, so it was new, and as you know, people like new stuff, so we really didn't know what, what will happen. Nobody knew what the future will be for the Swiss watch industry. And what was the atmosphere uh, during that time like? I know you traveled, but going to the office, how, what did I it mean, feel like? The atmosphere was the atmosphere of fear, because don't forget the Swiss watch industry had lost in the mid-70s from 90,000 jobs down to 30,000 jobs. And uh, Schaffhausen, we lost, we had 350 people on the payroll and we went down to 145. So, I mean, people were really scared. Some people also left the company because they said, we need a, a secure job because we have family and so. So, and then uh, this was a very, very critical thing. The whole management, the board of directors uh, somehow disappeared. One just didn't turn up anymore. One was sent away and one has left for, for as I said, for safety reasons. All right. And what was your role? How did you become known as the man who saved IWC with the suitcase that we've heard about? And what was the story with that? Well, you know, the story is that we had to look for new markets. We had to look for new products. And uh, new in those days where it was the area of the Persian or Arabic Gulf. So Kuwait, Bahrain, Doha, uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah, Oman, these countries were new. Nobody has ever heard of them in Switzerland because nobody knew where Dubai was. The area was known as the Pirate Coast. But we heard that uh, 
thanks to petrol, they became extremely rich and people are really spending. So uh, we said we have to conquer this market and I started to travel there. It was quite adventurous because some of the places didn't have hotels then. So I had to sleep in guest houses or in whatever places. And the most difficult thing was to get the connection that you could go to the rulers, uh, to uh, Sultan of Oman or to uh, Emir mm-hmm. of Dubai or Abu Dhabi. This was this needed a lot of patience, you know. But how did you know how to make these connections? I mean, Wikipedia wasn't around then. You were saying you said these countries weren't weren't known. So you were walking into situations almost blind. Absolutely. I remember one of my first adventures after being one week in Jeddah in uh, Saudi Arabia. I was in the hotel and it was absolutely miserable because I couldn't find anybody. There were some watch dealers, but they uh, sold very cheap stuff, so nothing at our level. And I remember three o'clock in the morning, somebody was knocking at my door at the hotel and said in Arabic, which I don't understand, give me your collection. And I said, well, after a week, you know, waiting, I said, well, I have to trust him. I gave him the two suitcases and he left and came back the next day. And the watches that were turned into suitcase were sold. There was an order. So it started very, uh, (laughs) well, it was funny in a way. I mean, our insurance companies would have probably had a heart attack if they saw me. (laughs) (laughs) So, but... When did you realize, or was there a point when you realized you could sort of exhale and say, you know what, I think we're going to be okay? Well, it took quite a long time because, don't forget, uh, we started to make jewelry watches. And uh, jewelry watches, we had so-called sets. Ladies' jewelry watches with earrings, with ring and with necklaces, man's watches with ring cufflinks, lighters and keychains in gold, in platinum, in diamonds. One of these sets could cost up to half a million Swiss franc. So this, of course, has saved us because some of the customers didn't even ask prices. They just said, I take this or I take this. So this is very interesting and saved us money-wise, but it didn't give much work to the factory. But I think one of the most difficult uh, or turning point, uh, our CFO then sent me a telex then, there were no emails, sent a telex then and said, if you don't bring 100,000 francs cash by the 20th of this month, we close. Because the bank doesn't give money anymore to pay, uh, to, uh, pay our uh, salaries. You what know? was it like to read something like that? Did your heart drop out or... No, it didn't drop out because I knew the situation we were in. But I thought I didn't know that it was that bad, you know. So I sold some watches out of the suitcases, cashed in, and came back to Schaffhausen with a nice order plus the cash. And this has really saved the company for that moment. But on the long run, we needed other things. And uh, we were trying everything, I can say. And we realized quite quickly that the future for IWC cannot be electronics because we had no idea. We were really 
watchmakers, and we have decided that the future can only be mechanical watches. And uh, But we tried with pocket watches because this was a traditional thing, but we had to find out that uh, it didn't work. It, pocket watch was out. It was not fashion. We tried... And we tried many things, but a lucky, very lucky uh, moment then for us was that I heard that the Porsche family looked for somebody that would produce watches under the name of Porsche Design for them. And uh, so I went to see Mr. Ferdinand Alexander Porsche, the one that has designed the 911 Porsche. And so we quickly started a cooperation which was extremely interesting for us and gave us uh, volume. And, uh, well, I have to say it became so important that for a certain time we had we decided on the board that Porsche Design should never make more than one-third of the total turnover of IWC. Oh, really? Because we were afraid, you know, because that the brand Porsche Design would become more important than IWC. And let's turn a little bit, uh, switch gears a little bit, talking about uh, beautiful watches and masterpieces. There are two pieces that you were important in the development of, the Sidoral, Scafusia, and the Il Destriero Scafusia. Tell, take us through the development and, and the mindset, and how did these timepieces come to be? Well, you know, this was in the 80s, actually. We, when we were over the hill, let's say, we said we need new products and we need some really special products that make uh, the brand better known among watch lovers. And uh, so for the 125th, anniversary of IWC, we said, okay, we have to create something special. So all the things that have been built or invented in Schaffhausen before, we put together in one watch. It was the Destriero Scafusio, because there we put, uh, it was uh, a chronograph with split second, it was moon face, perpetual calendar, and also minute repeater. This was the most complicated in those days that we have ever made, and this was for the, for the this was for the 125th anniversary. But then I said this is not good enough because it costed depending on the version of if it was uh, platinum or gold, up to four hundred thousand francs. And I said that's for very very few people. We also need some something for the average customer average well so to say but uh, that's when we launched the portuguese the portuguese watches an old uh, watch that originally was built in 1939 this was the revival of the portuguese watches which was an extremely big watch is the reason why it was so big because the only quantity of movements that we had in stock was pocket watch movements. Mm-hmm. So this is why the watch has become so big. And uh, there we can I'm very proud of it. We have launched the size worldwide, the size, the new size of man's watches, because nobody has ever worn a watch like this. I tried it in the 70s with 
Portofino mm-hmm. and other watches, and people were laughing, said, you're crazy, nobody will ever <laughs> wear a watch of this size. But then somehow with this uh, Portuguese, it just exploded. And uh, then this was really the new, the start of the new size of men's watches. And that's really what sort of IWC became known for. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, yes, that's true. On the other hand, uh, the Portofino, which is my baby, really, mm-hmm. because I launched three watches. Two didn't survive. I had uh, Amalfi, Venezia, and Portofino, because I'm a fan of Italy. That's why I have Italian <laughs> <Okay>. name. <laughs> so the Portofino, actually, my friends from the board didn't want it. They said, look, a round watch with three hands, everybody has it. We don't need that. Said we need it because we don't have all the engineers and divers and I don't know what. We also have customers that want a simple, elegant watch. And this has probably turnover wise become the most important watch line of IWC. And another question that comes up as you're discussing that, because you were the, the the CMO, the chief marketing officer at one point, and, you know, IWC has this great reputation, especially amongst like the watch collectors. And you had this, you had a very big role in the success that IWC is seeing today. What was your strategy? You know, people always talk about strategy and marketing strategy. What was your strategy during that time to make this happen? Well, the strategy, I would say, was to have new, perfect products. This was the most important thing. We decided to work only certain markets and not worldwide because we didn't have the money to finance it. So you were very strategic in how very you market strategic. to Very And uh, when you go back in history, a lot of people forget about it. When I was joining the company, two-thirds of the total turnover was made in Japan and places where the Japanese bought. Okay. Watches. Well, oh. Nobody knows that Nobody, or forgot yeah. about yeah, that's it. Not, yeah, that's but not. that was a fact. So actually we said we had the Far East, uh, which China didn't exist then as a watch market. Mm-hmm. So it was my, mainly Japan, Middle East, and Europe. Uh, the United States was too big for a market. And for us to attack really, I mean, we were there, we were represented and uh, the funny thing is, for 50 years, we were represented by one of our competitors from Switzerland. I don't know why. This was one of my first, I don't say names now. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, This was one of my first steps that I kicked out our importer and then tried ourselves. But mainly, it was Far East, Middle East, and Europe in, in those days. And so, with IWC being the company that it is today, when you come up to the headquarters and you look at the building and you go in and knowing your connection to this to the success of the company how do you how do you feel what is it what is it like to say you know what i'm looking at this place and i played a role in making sure this place stayed where it was yeah well i'm not the kind of a person that feels much like that i really feel at home when I come. I am always say I'm part of the inventory of this company. <laughs> and uh, of course, I'm very proud of it, but you know how it is. I mean, uh, people forget quite quickly. I mean, 
some of the stories, especially from the Middle East, uh, well, they sound like like uh, fairy tales, you know, uh, sometimes traveling with millions of watches, jewelry, and other brands because people trusted me and they asked me to transport their watches. Also <laughs> okay. in Oman, for instance. So, I mean, it's really, it's, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. How has the company changed from the time, oh, this will be a long answer, I <laughs> see, since the time that you first entered the doors until today? Well, it has changed in a way. I mean, one thing is still the same. You have to buy, you have to build a good product and you have to find the customer that buys it. And what has changed completely is what is in between. This is marketing now, which has changed. Uh, that has changed completely. Sometimes marketing is so important and as you know, all kind of products are sold because they're perfect stories around it. Because they're, uh, it's like in the car industry, there, there are not no bad cars anymore on the market. All the cars are good, but it depends. It's emotional, especially in the watch business, because watch business, I mean, nothing is logical, fortunately. And uh, it's emotions. How can you uh, convince somebody to pay 20,000 francs for uh, a steel watch? I mean, logically, no way. It's emotions. It's the stories behind it. And this is very important. Now, the whole marketing part, which is so important today, has developed in the years that I work with IWC. Uh, we had an advertising department when I started. Uh, there were about three or four persons. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was what was called marketing. But we made uh, tremendous events even then. It was different, but... Uh, I I think this is the thing that has changed the most is the marketing part and uh, we are much better known worldwide today also thanks to the new possibilities of social medias etc which becomes more and more important but still I think uh, you have to have the right product otherwise on the long run you can not only live by stories and by marketing and so i mean the basic product must be really top and because you mentioned social media and the importance of having an, uh, a good product because if it's not someone will say something sure you see that i mean this is always all transparent today you hear good news you hear bad news that's the well advantage or disadvantage of social medias i mean you can also ruin somebody uh without any uh consequences for you and this is also we have to be very careful this is why we have to be very careful with everything with uh, quality with service oh, this is extremely important because thanks to social medias everything has become transparent and not in, in some markets but worldwide if you could go back what 40 some odd years to the Hannes that was headhunted and uh, was thinking, oh, should I you know, accept the offer or, or should I not? If you could go back and talk to that version of Hannes, what would you say? 
Well, what I would say, looking back to the 70s and to all our business in the Middle East, I would tell him, you should change from a fixed salary to commission basis. <laughs> <laughs> that would be one thing. But otherwise, I would say uh, I wouldn't change much because uh, it was so interesting. Time was flying. And uh, some people, you know, they ask, how could you stay so long with the same company? Sometimes I say I was just too lazy to look for another job. But, I mean, basically, it was so interesting and uh, we were so successful uh, that uh, I wouldn't change much. Of course, what I would eventually change is, what do you call it, work-life balance, mm. uh, because I was working so hard and traveling so much. And, you know, traveling in those days was different in a way that, not like today, that our people, they go for a day or two to Hong Kong, week later to New York. I mean, in those days, when you went to Hong Kong, you said, the ticket is so expensive then that you do... Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Taipei, and Tokyo on the same trip. And then I was uh, sometimes three or more weeks on the road. And for many years, for about five, six years, I traveled in spring, once around the world eastwards and in fall, once around the world westwards, because some of the markets had to be visited and they were too far away actually just for a single trip so you did tours for you were on the road how much what was during the during a year i would say uh, about probably net three months and then when you take away holidays uh, etc i was practically constantly on the road for certain years Mr. Pontley, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so interesting to learn about your story and your relationship to IWC. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of It's Complicated, A Cultural History of Complications with Hannes Pontley and his IWC stories. And we invite you to join us next week when we'll have Walter Volpers, IWC's Associate Director, Product Management, in the studio. He'll discuss the future of complications, why fashion and luxury do not automatically go hand in hand, and how IWC was sustainable before sustainability became cool. Make sure you join us for that. 